welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These lads are mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders past and present and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. Tell me about you. I mean, we haven't really, we haven't met too much. Well, this is the first time we've met. Yeah. Tell me about Bromman. Where, where are you from? What's your background? Where are you now? That'd be great. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on and for all of the support that Nimbus has provided so far. It's just been so beautiful to, to be partnered with such a values-aligned organisation. A bit about me. So I'm the eldest um, of four girls. So I have three brilliant younger sisters. Um, I've got an incredibly inspiring mum and Alma, and I think... I've always been surrounded by really, really strong women. Dad's amazing too, but I think it's always been the women in my life that have kind of led the way. I have been around. I've worked in a few different industries from the music industry to the arts and then corporate into nonprofit. And I kind of find, found my way into the nonprofit space to working um, on strategy with a few nonprofits that were really struggling to rely solely on government or solely on philanthropy. And in working with them to try and help them to create new revenue streams for their charities or social enterprises, I kind of uncovered some really yucky truths that were happening in Australia on the front line in the domestic violence space. And I was a journalist to start off with. I love, I'm very curious and I wanted to find out what was happening and why it was happening, what the gaps were, and if I had a role to play in trying to fill those gaps. But I wanted to have the conversations first so that I didn't just come in prescribing a solution. I wanted to make sure that it was informed by the people that I, I was connecting with. So I spent a really incredible year around Australia interviewing survivors of domestic and family violence and learning about their experiences and trying to understand why they were forced to return to abuse so many times or to homelessness. And the end result was METAL, which is, I guess, the mechanism to help these brilliant women re-enter the workforce after experiencing homelessness because of domestic and family violence. So that's kind of my career history in a nutshell. And now we're in our third year of operation and I get to work alongside these amazing women every day. And yeah, I'm so privileged. It's the best job in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> well, they often say that, don't they? When it, when it stops becoming work and that's when you know you're in the right place, which sounds like you're in. And with metal... And even the domestic violence, I know it's even like I hear DV, you know, it's an abbreviation I hear quite a lot as well. And, and I mean, what's the status quo with that as, a, as, you, as an issue right now? I know the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, you know, was very public. And I think that was for me anyway, the first time I'd heard 
it being on the national sense in Australia. How much of an issue is it right now today? Yeah, it's it's such a huge crisis and I don't think until recently, despite some really incredible um, thought leaders trying to make it a national crisis, it hasn't really been until this year that there's, or last year, sorry, with Grace Tame, that there's been enough public momentum. Last year, I think it was 48 women were killed at the hand of a former or current partner. And this year, so we're, it's the 15th of March today and nine women already in Australia have been killed because of domestic and family violence. And I kind of, I guess the way to draw that into focus for me is imagine in your community if just nine people had been killed by an unknown mysterious murderer, it, there would be outrage until that that matter was found there would be outrage until reforms were put in place to protect that community but there's no outrage and I think that's what makes me really sad but it also is what drives me to keep pushing for reform because it is a crisis it's it's happening in homes that you would just never expect there's no one type of perpetrator there's no one type of victim survivor either it impacts everyone So I think what we're trying to do is make that conversation more accessible and to see brilliant women like Grace Tame in the spotlight sharing, being so brave and sharing her story. That's what we need. Oh my God. She she is an absolute legend. Everything that's been coming in the last few months, like what she's done when, you know, at the awards recently and then her speak to the Australian press, I was like, that speech alone, to have the courage to, to stand in a room largely filled with men, which is like actually quite good in a sense, because often I used to work in PR and we'd be at events about women in leadership and things like that, but most of the room would be filled with women. And we'd always say, God, we need more men. We're like, we need a balance because you're, you're singing to the choir here. And yeah, that speech that she did was just like, gave me goosebumps. I was like, fuck, that would have taken so much courage to do that amazing work and like we just need people to listen more but I was also thinking of when you were saying those figures mm-hmm. I was just thinking of the shark attack that happened recently which was obviously awful when we lost the swimmer who was um, down on the eastern seaboard there but like if you if you compare it to that you know where it was a single day I know there's more people die you know of course the year but it's national news all across everywhere so like something like that, and even though like most swimmers and surfers will actually say that they know, they understand they're in the sharks environment, and the majority are happy that like if, if it ever does come to that, I'm okay with that because I know I'm in their territory. So the people who are in surfing know the risks that they take, but yet when someone dies, there's like outrage and everyone's like cold sharks. Here's humans killing humans in their own family and there's not the same outrage like it just doesn't seem to weigh up right yeah absolutely I think that's a really great point and I um have a beautiful whatsapp group of some girlfriends that are in different locations around Australia and the world and during that time it was like the same week as the shark attack there was also a woman and I'm out a little trigger warning, I guess I'll, I'll share some numbers in case this is distressing to anyone um, because it's some graphic content. But there was a woman whose body was found in a bath of acid in that same week. And at the same time, it was the same week where Grace Tame didn't smile 
when she had that press opportunity yeah. with Scott Morrison and the woman who was found in a bathtub full of acid got no airtime. And to me, I know that this is my industry and this is my, you know, it's my mission to go about and drive change in this space. But that was just so shocking to me. And whilst, of course, it's so important that this poor shark attack victim and Grace being such a courageous, fearless leader has that airtime, there has to be some balance there because I don't know if that was even a common story outside of WA or South Australia. Wow. I mean, I, I certainly didn't hear about it and that is shocking. Um, and yeah, that is awful. The fact that someone had to go through that, that's just really, if anything, that's just hit me pretty deep there. I'm like, I can't believe, yeah, yeah not only that that happened and then the fact that we, no one was even aware of that, it's just... Exactly. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the only, I don't want to be, have another negative, but the way the media is now news, is that going to get better or even more difficult because it's all sensationalist now. It's like, what's going to, what's going to sell papers? What's mm. going to sell headlines? And yeah, I mean, even with the shark scenario, like I have a WhatsApp group with all my Irish lads who I'm still connected to. They actually shared the news with me before I'd actually heard it here in Australia I woke up to them messaging me saying look what I saw in Australia yeah. so it's a, it's a catch because I think whilst it's so important that it is reported it has to be reported in the correct way as well there's a I, I might get this wrong but it was there's this Facebook group called like we fixed it or something like that and it's fixing headlines that speak about these tragic murders of women at the hands of their perpetrators or current or former partners but the way that the women are portrayed even in those headlines are so tragic and it's it, yeah it, it wasn't I guess they're just like oh a person was found and they don't really give credit to the fact that this was a human this was someone's family. Mm. It's not just, oh, she found herself in an unlucky situation. This is someone who's obviously mm. been going through a pretty rough time up until this point. And what's the deeper issue here? This didn't just happen mysteriously. There's a deeper issue here that we need to look at as a nation and try and fix. I remember the Jill Marr, who's the, the, was she the Irish lady that passed away down in Melbourne and what was the headline down around there? Lady out late at night or something like they were framing it like she shouldn't have been out that late on her own. And then that triggered that whole thing. I was like, why Why is the narrative always about she shouldn't have been out there in the first place versus, well, that guy shouldn't have done that in the first, like, you know what I mean? It's just the whole argument is, is, is upside down. Absolutely. That's such a perfect example. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, it's the same, like I'm passionate about mental health and people often say, oh yeah, it's gone so far. I'm like, yeah, it has in some ways, but there's still a lot more to be done. And it, it infiltrates all different levels of society. There's a big thing in tennis as well. I don't know if you, you're aware, whenever a female tennis player wins a game, the commentators will usually go to, oh, your outfit, that kind of thing, or your hair, or this band that you're wearing. Tell us about that. You know, let's say Serena Williams was always an amazing style and they'd always talk to her first about her style, not because of her athletic performance versus with the guides it's always oh you were amazing you showed such resilience da, 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 da. The, the thing is that was going on for years and you're kind of almost succumbed to it that you're numb to it no one even realized until it 
it was only point, pointed out very recently. And I mean, start looking back, Jesus, nearly every single interview with someone in a female in an athletic arena is outrageously sexist. But it's so important to be having those conversations so that we can see uh, reporting change, hopefully. <laughs> Did that lead you on then to create Metal? Can you tell people if they don't know what it is you guys do at Metal? Yeah, so we're a registered charity that operates a national gift delivery service. So gift boxes for birthdays, congratulations, breakups, whatever the reason. And they're full of products that are manufactured by women in our employment and training program or procured from local and ethical suppliers around the country. So basically the social enterprise is the mechanism to help these women get back on their feet after facing homelessness. They're trained in e-commerce, warehousing, supply chain logistics, all of these future-facing roles that will help set them up to rebuild the safe future that they deserve. And while they're with us as well, they have access to study scholarships, crisis support funds for things like car registration, bonds for their new homes. There's a whole list of expenses that, you know, you don't really anticipate when you're starting from scratch. And then the final piece is childcare subsidies for women who aren't eligible for government support. So with all of the profits from the social enterprise, we can provide kind of that holistic support to them. And yeah, it was those conversations that made it really clear that one of the number one barriers that were in the way of them rebuilding their life was financial security. And very often it's because it was tied to their perpetrator. So they weren't eligible for Centrelink or these women were from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. They didn't have family support and a job was the only thing standing in the way of them leaving the crisis shelter. But it's much easier said than done to just get a job. So we wanted to create something that was designed by survivors for survivors. And so far, it's yeah, it's really worked. We've worked with 25 women so far in the last couple of years and they're all just the most inspiring people ever. They're just so, so great. And I think they're very often overlooked in the workforce, but they shouldn't be. They're, they're an asset to the, to the community and an asset to the Australian workforce. So they should be welcomed in rather than isolated. It reminds me, I watched the show Netflix Made, which is, uh, uh, you've probably seen it. Yeah, it was an amazing series of like in America, you know, domestic violence shelters and things like that. And you touched on a lot of, people going back into those kind of toxic relationships because there's still love there in, in many cases, right? Or there's kids involved. So it's not as simple as just, you know, moving away. But yeah, I often think of America, like God, like the way society even is there, like the the, the falls from grace or different levels of society is like even bigger maybe over there. And it was just like that, yeah, that show was like, oh my God, the, the scary thing about that show, when you watch it, you think there's there's thousands of women who are probably going through this right now. That empathy, you're just like, oh, how, how can we help? Like, how can we change this, you know? Yeah, I think that that show did a really good job at articulating, articulating the issues that women face without making it too gruesome. Like they, they didn't try mm. and exaggerate the situations that women face. They were just really quite transparent with what they have to face and sadly as much as I'd like to say that America is probably it is worse than Australia uh, the women here face a lot of the same issues and as I was watching 
And there were so many moments where, it, you know, there were so many comparisons drawn that I thought, wow, it's crazy that that is fate. That's an issue that's faced globally, not just here. Yeah. So, you know, very often women return because it's most of the women in our care are the sole carer of children. And they've said before, I would much rather endure the abuse myself when it's not being perpetrated against the children than raise my children in poverty or expose them to living in a car or in a shower block on the coastline. They would much rather sacrifice their, their own safety than expose their children to homelessness. And so when they return, it's at no fault of their own. They, they want to try and provide the most normal life possible, I guess, for their children within the best of their means. So it's, it's heartbreaking that that's mm. their only option sometimes. Yeah, but also from a positive point of view, when you when I hear that, I think, gosh, just the sheer resilience and selflessness of those acts that those women do is just something, it's like, it is special. The protective nature of the maternal instincts is phenomenal, even willing to sacrifice themselves for their children to have a better opportunity. I mean, that is, you know, it is an amazing thing in itself, but also with your mission with metal that hopefully less and less women will have to go through that to provide for their children going forward. I hope so. The, the really heartbreaking <laughs> that I don't think, you know, until I was working in this space, I didn't realise how bleak the situation was of just being at capacity all the time. There's never a night where they're not at capacity. And so that's also another thing that from a government level, safe housing and public housing needs to be a priority on the government's agenda because so often these women, over half of the women that actually call the shelters that we partner with are turned away because they just simply don't have the beds for them. And that's when they end up returning or going to sleep in their car. So, you know, that can't change until we have adequate accommodation for them, crisis or long-term. So there's a lot that needs to change, but I do feel very lucky that I get to work with, I know it's such a small pool of women, but get to work with them to help them avoid living in those situations. And you mentioned, so 25 women you've worked with, 48 have sadly passed away per year. From a macro point of view, like how many women are facing this mm. across the year? Is there hundreds, thousands of cases of domestic violence? There's a stat, I think it's current as of last financial year, but the police in Australia are called out to a domestic violence incident every two minutes around Australia so it's it's unimaginable the numbers and even still it's so underreported like in the LGBTQIA communities it's so underreported in those communities indigenous communities are really hesitant to report because they're scared that it will impact their children and that their children will be taken away if this home is not safe culturally and linguistically diverse communities are scared to report because it's shame on their family if their marriage is failing there are so many barriers that um, i guess make it impossible to know what the real number is so yeah it's meant to be that one in three women are experiencing domestic and family violence at the hands of a current or former partner but who yeah who knows what the actual number is at the moment it's mm. you know the women that are in our care if we use them as a, a very small case study I guess 
they had all tried to leave their perpetrator at least seven times before they actually went to, before they succeeded in securing a place at the crisis refuge. And before that final time, they hadn't actually contacted the police before. So, you know, those previous escape attempts, they're not captured in the data. So it's, I guess it's really important to just share that it's a much bigger issue than we have a grasp on at the moment. 100%. And like, I mean, even just doing some basic maths, if it was one in three, let's say the population of Australia is, what, 26 million, let's say roughly half are women, so 13 million, and then a third of that, you're looking at probably close to 4 million women in it's Australia, which is, that is that is uh, quite harrowing because a lot, a lot of the, the structures that you're talking about there or the issues that are facing it are like quite similar from a mental health perspective. People don't report or people don't speak forward. There's barriers to entry. The numbers aren't as big, I don't think, actually in mental health, like in terms of one in three women. But it's similar situation, you know, it's like we're be- dealing with stigma. It's close to home. Yeah, if it's the person that's in your home, it's the same with, unfortunately, with murders and things like that. The hardest thing is to prove when it's a partner because you're living together so much. And I'm like, where do we go? There's so much I feel like we could talk about here. And you, you mentioned, so where, where are you based now? Do you have like a head office? Is there people all around Australia that are working for you right now? Or so We're based in Western Australia on Wajak Noongar land. So we, we have our um, main warehouse. It's withheld from public record just for the safety of the women because 93% of the women that come through aren't safe enough to be working in public-facing roles. So they're still actively being pursued by their perpetrators. We, whenever we look at expanding, we always have to kind of factor in having those same security measures that Crisis Refuge would have. So our physical operations are all in Western Australia, but we're really excited because next month we're actually launching an online offering, meaning that we can, whilst it won't be the dedicated six-month side-by-side support, We'll have digital modules online that mean that women in the safety of their own home or in libraries if they're not safer, safe enough at home or through our various dissemination partners will have access to the support that we provide the women for free and it's just open source so that they know the next steps to take after crisis if the main thing standing in the way is financial security. So that's a really exciting for us and we will have a few people depending on COVID restrictions that will be flying around Australia to help different shelters and different hubs that already exist to I guess train the trainer so that they can have a physical hub for people to come in as well and yeah help people through these modules. Perth are you out of lockdown yet are you still we're we're only just kind of copying what the east coast has been through for the last two years we were in a bit of a bubble so as you know yeah it's definitely hit us now I think I'm down seven staff at the moment because of either close contacts or COVID so we've still got a little weight but we'll get there I think I'm learning to just be a little more flexible with my plans at the moment there's no other way yeah it did make me think there because you know especially when you're running a business I mean so often you can get caught up in trying to make money or trying to make it a success and we on a side note we have Nimbus online which I must touch base with you about that because at Christmas, I was down at Addy Road, which is here in um, Sydney, which you, uh, you might be familiar with. And 
I have a friend that like she volunteers on there and so we were doing the Christmas hampers and packing all that you know so I was volunteering when I got down there initially it was great fun it was like Christmas music and I suppose it was like I was actually being quite selfish enjoying it and having fun with it and I forgot I suppose when I first got there the reason why I was actually there and when they actually brought out some people they had a, a lady from Afghanistan who is a refugee here in Australia she did a talk and then there was a guy called Moz who was was incarcerated for eight years in um, on Manus Island. Three of those were after he was granted his um, Australian citizenship. All of a sudden, it really just rocked me. And I started to think, we need to give back more. And then I started thinking about our offering as a business. And we weren't accessible to all, essentially. You know, if I was a survivor of domestic violence, how would I afford to come do a sauna, for example? Or even sign up to our online platform or buy a product. They can't, like you know, in most cases, they they can't. And when I was there, my friend Viv, if she's listening, she's an absolute legend. And she brought us into the grocery store section, which, you know, they did it really, really well in terms of people can go there who, you know, I think they get like a token from the government and then they can pick their groceries and things like that. But again, I was just thinking, Jesus, like, it's so easy to get caught up in the run of things from a capitalist point of view and just not actually think about people who really need that support. And all businesses can do a lot more to give back to those because like often those marginal groups are those who actually need that support the most. Going for a massage or getting your nails done or getting your hair done, that could mean the world to someone. Whereas often it's easy to get caught up like, oh, I haven't had my hair done in a few weeks. And you know, you, you can just be so self-centered, get really... I felt really embarrassed to be honest you know I yeah I you shouldn't feel embarrassed I think that it's really beautiful that 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 experience kind of made you start thinking in that way and it really excites me to hear a business owner thinking in that way because that's a really big part of our strategy at metal and I know it's a really big part of a lot of social enterprises strategies in that they want to demonstrate to businesses that it's okay to try and focus on making money for your business because if you can generate money and have a little bit of playing room to do great things with that surplus money then you're contributing to change as well and I don't think it has to be one or the other you don't have to be a successful business or a charity you can combine profit for purpose and so it's really exciting to to know that those kind of experiences made you reframed your thinking in that way. A big part of what we're doing with this rollout, making these modules accessible around the nation, parallel to that, we're also working with big corporates around Australia to help them, I guess, pick up the blueprint that we've created for Metal and show them that they can just apply that to their business as well to make their workforce more accessible for the community, for marginalised communities. And it might be something like, you know, something really simple, like making the application process for roles within your organisation more accessible by saying, we understand that not everyone has a mind-blowing comprehensive resume because you might have gaps in your employment history that are outside of your control. Let's have a conversation or, or... framing that induction or interview process that allows people to apply that don't necessarily think that they're worthy enough to apply from experience 
you know, I've, I've managed teams with tertiary qualified, like high flyers before. And to be really honest, the work ethic that I've seen from the women in my care at the moment way outshines the people that I've worked with in the past. And so I think that's what I'm trying to demonstrate is there are ways to, as a business, support these marginalised communities in being active citizens and, and taking part in the workforce. But then as well on the more holistic support side and wellness side as well, if you have the capacity to be able to dedicate a portion of your profits to providing your beautiful services at Nimbus to people that need them. Amazing. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be a one size fits all approach. Yeah, no, I agree. It also reminds me of the refugee scenario as well. Same kind of thing. There was a huge study around, it was like a 30 year study about what does the average refugee do to the GDP of a country versus an average citizen. And it was something like three times more productive, put yeah. more money back into the economy. And it's, it's the same thing. It's because you're giving people a chance. And for someone who hasn't had a chance or comes from a disrupted background or, you know, trauma or anything that we've been speaking about, if you give someone a second chance at life, nine times out of 10, they're going to bite your arm off to get it. And they're going to be more productive than the average person. So, yeah, as you were saying, like, even from the economy, from a government level, if anyone's listening, it is better for the economy to give these people a chance I was thinking of government as well as you were chatting your funding like do you get funded through the government or is it all self-raised we haven't been funded by the government yet and to be really honest we have kind of avoided it for our first few years of operation because we didn't want to be restricted by really strict government granting guidelines we wanted to be able to be agile and change what our offering looks like dependent on what the women needed at the time. But now that we have a really solid structure, I definitely welcome any money that comes our way. But mm -hmm. as far as, you know, we're really lucky in that we generate most of our revenue from the sales of our social enterprise. The rest of our funding comes from private philanthropy and different business grants. Honestly, like if, if someone said, if the government had money to fund this area, where would you tell them to put it? I wouldn't say us. I would say to housing because it has to be a housing first model, in my opinion, because how are women meant to establish a place in the world if they don't have a hub, if they don't have that base? So for me, it has to be focused on housing. We the crisis here in Perth and I, the rental crisis here in Perth, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere, everywhere else at the moment, mm. is so bleak. Like we have women who our program runs for six months and part of that is to help them secure their own rental and their own private accommodation. We're applying for 17 plus private rentals for each of these women per week. They're not getting a look in. It's just, it's really bleak. So they're in crisis accommodation much longer than they usually would be, meaning that the crisis accommodation is at capacity for way longer than it usually would be. It's dangerous and something needs to happen from a government level to invest, to redirect money towards housing. It's just, yeah. What would be the average wait time, let's say, for a mum in that system? Are we talking like months? Are we talking years? And even if it is there then stigma? Does that touch into the private sector? Like, so let's say I'm a landlord, you get an application from it. Let's say someone who you work with a metal, like, is, do they also have to battle that stigma? Or do I pick this couple or do I pick someone who's come from a domestic violence background? 
Absolutely. It's, yeah, it happens in every kind of uh, channel to entering the, the rental market. So the waiting list for public housing at the moment, honestly, we've had women that are on there for more than two years. It's, it's really... Mm. If I'm honest, when we're trying to set up the women for a sustainable future, we just say straight away, let's try and access the private market first because it's just, we don't want to build their hope up and pretend that public housing will happen right away because it won't. But yes, I mean, if, if you put yourself in the shoes of a landlord and you were thinking who's going to pay rent, who's most likely to pay rent, sure, you're going to go for the double. But again, it's going back to that drive for someone being given a chance. Like, yes, these women might rely on Centrelink support for rental assistance and might only have a really minimum weekly wage, but they will pay their rent because they don't want to lose that opportunity once they're once mm. they're in a safe house because they haven't had that safety for so long. So, yeah, I guess touching on what you said, it's trying to remove that stigma to be able to give these people the opportunity that they deserve. But then does that stigma drive then from, you know, the powers above? How do we shift change? Because if you think, okay, let's say that's at the coalface, like if you think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, down the very bottom, the first step is security and being stable, which would be a home, which you're saying a lot of these women don't even have. But then you go right up to the upper echelons of, let's say, government, where we don't have accurate representation across the genders and there was that famous picture of when scott morrison had his first cabinet you know whatever it was like three or four years ago it was mostly men over the age of 50 largely bald all in navy suits i think there was only one or maybe two women i think and then there was a canadian government which had been elected roughly around the same time with justin trudeau and that picture was unbelievable you could see people of all different mixed race, ages, genders, you name it, frizzy hair, big beards, you know. I love the Canada model. I think it's just like great. I wish we can have more like that. But how do we drive change locally when the people that represent us aren't reflective of what Australia is? Yeah. Like, is that not a vicious cycle? <laughs> and I wish I wish there was like a silver bullet answer. I think a couple of things. We have to keep vocalising how furious we are. And I think so often people can feel so deflated and think I'm yelling and nothing is happening. I can't see change happening. So then they feel defeated and back down. But although the pace of change is like glacial, it is happening. And I know that I'm the eternal optimist, but like looking at a micro level for WA, we have some incredible senators like We had our first Indigenous woman appointed to the Senate last year, Dorinda Cox. And moments like that, whilst they should have happened so long ago, that is signifying progress for me. And I think it's so important to focus on that progress rather than getting, well, not rather than, at the same time as focusing on the doom and gloom of what's happening right up the top in in our current government. Mm that's just too embarrassing to focus on a lot of the time but there's a lot of really good stuff happening on the ground in local politics and a big learning for me I used to just think when I was younger you know find your party and lobby with them and give them your voice and share what you can to elevate that party 
but from a leadership position now, I've had to kind of swallow my pride and learn that I also have to communicate with the people who are not necessarily people that I see eye to eye with politically mm. because at the end of the day, they are the ones that are going to influence policy because they're in power as much as I hate that they mm. are. I do have to work within the current system. So, you know, it's easy to echo the sentiment of people that you that you respect and of policies that you respect it's less easy to sit down and have a conversation with a local MP of a party that you don't necessarily agree with and tell them this is what needs to change and for me personally like I'm not a super outwardly spoken person so it's taking a lot of practice but I think that those conversations with your opposition I guess maybe that's mm. what lives change but I don't know I think it needs mm. to be faceted I don't think that there's yeah I don't know what the what the clean answer is to be honest <laughs> mm. I, I think you've hit on a really important point there of it's one thing to be pro what you think you want to happen but then there's another thing trying to actually yeah as you said work within the parameters of government, capitalism, community, social societies to get that point across. And I think that's the real magic art for people to be able to kind of do that. Like I was thinking of, you know, Nelson Mandela when he came, when he got in, you know, came out of prison and it would have been easy for him to not do those things. But, and then when he got into the power, the first thing a lot of the locals wanted to do was like completely do a U-turn on everything they had done before. And he had the strength to go, well, no, this is part of our history. We need to recognize that and move forward together. I mean, need people like that, but I think, yeah, I know what you mean. It was one of my questions actually later on, which was like the power in one. And I know a lot of people might think, oh, I can't do that. I'm only one person at home. You know, I can't drive change. But there's been some really good examples of that. And thing that was going on here in the eastern suburbs recently in Sydney, which was like, excuse my French, fuck the cup, which was, you know, people using takeaway coffee cups all the time. And I can't believe I'm really embarrassed to say this, like up until a few years ago, even when I was at a cafe, I would always ask for a takeaway cup because I just preferred drinking it that way. And now I'm like, oh my God, I'm mortified that I used to be like that fucking pretentious. But when you think about there's 7 billion of us on this planet, not everyone has a cup of coffee a day, but I say like those who have multiple makeup for those who don't, you know, you could be talking about billions of coffee cups in circulation every single day. Like, where is that going? But then there was a big movement around the eastern suburbs here and all this cafes do it. Now everyone does, you can bring your own mug and stuff. So already you're just taking so much waste out of the economy, even by just you doing it. Even if you did one coffee a day for a year, that's 365 cartons you've taken out of the that kind of recycled economy. Like it's, it does make a difference. And you can apply this to anything. You know, Jim Carrey spoke about this once, like, you know, didn't think he was like, he's actually quite amazing in a lot of what he says publicly and he was talking about veganism and meat and everyone kind of goes oh like all these meat companies in america they have a monopoly on it and, and he said like often people think they control the market it's like they don't like we control the market yeah. if we all decided to wake up tomorrow and not eat meat these companies would either have to diversify into vegan friendly meats or they wouldn't survive and that's the thing you know we don't realize it, but we have the power. I have such a beautiful little reflection on that exact point. So we, at Metal, we want to make sure that 
all of our marketing and our, our brand accurately reflects what the people that we exist to support want it to reflect. And we were working on a campaign last year. You know, we're a really small charity. We don't have a big marketing budget. So we wanted it to be in-house and we wanted it, it to be really authentic. And we spoke to all of the women who had been through our program and said, if you had one message that you wanted Australia to know, what would it be? And, you know, we were expecting a bit of anger and a bit of a bit of urgency to see the hardship that they were facing. But instead, the resounding message was change is tangible. And that just blew my mind that, you know, women who had been through such unimaginable hardship wanted Australia to know that we can drive change even as an individual. That was the that was the overarching message. And that just floored me and really put things into perspective for me as an individual as well, thinking, okay, sometimes you feel like you're banging your head up against the wall, but if these women who would be completely forgiven for just throwing up their hands and saying, no, I give up, nothing's, no one's supporting me, I'm alone. If they can still see that change is tangible, if each individual puts in a concerted effort, then that's pretty cool. <laughs> I love that, yeah, because like even this conversation today was kind of loose. We were, you know, we we're thinking about International Women's Day, which is, you know, a great day in the calendar. And I think that has been awesome to put it on the agenda, which I think now it's really, you know, it's ubiquitous in the calendar every year, which is fantastic. And a lot of brands do some amazing things. But also that conversation doesn't have to stop on that day in March every year. It's the same with Are You OK Day, which in theory is great, but those conversations don't need to be funneled around one day. They can, they should be funneled through every single day of our existence to drive that change. Because, you know, those conversations, I mean, do you think those constant conversations are the ones that kind of make progress for the issue do you think and and let's say tying it back to metal is it having those everyday conversations what's going to make a difference to you and the issue at hand yeah for sure I think repetition definitely is helpful but putting it past conversations and giving people again using the beneficiaries words something tangible to actually action for metal like we, we want to make contributing to change as simple as purchasing a gift and we want to articulate what that looks like so if you purchase a gift how is this supporting this marginalized community but broader than metal as well I think these conversations are so important and it's it's really reassuring to me that that they're much more diverse now. The conversations aren't just talking, like aren't just happening within a little bubble. They're happening with you and I. Like the fact that I'm talking to you as a man is is fabulous. And that's really, I guess that gives me hope that, I don't know, I guess when you operate outside of your bubble, that's when change can start to happen. When the, when the conversations you said before, rather than just preaching to my own choir, having conversations, mm-hmm people who have the ability to then go back to their businesses and implement change if they were inspired to do so that's really exciting to me so i was at a samsung event as part of vivid a few years ago before covid which it's hard to remember life pre-covid but (laughs) there was a talk about like modern interiors and things like that there was there was like the head head designer from ikea was there and like a really interesting guy 
and then somebody asked a question from the crowd saying oh you know i spent a year in sweden doing university or something like that and i was mesmerized by how everything in the system in sweden just is adapted to recycling properly you know the kids the elderly everyone like it's so clean everyone knows and they were like how how do you guys do it like we struggle to do it over here etc etc and he said it was simple we just educated our children and within one generation the children then brought that message back to their parents and kind of re-educated their their parents about why it's important thing and they said literally within one one generation they've solved the whole issue of recycling which i think up until 20 years ago it wasn't actually in a good place and i was like oh how amazing was that like you know i feel like children nowadays like this next wave it's exciting actually being a dad myself that we're going to raise be probably more present and both emotionally and just physically for our children than let's say my parents were for me just not for anyone's fault just the way things are with society so it's actually quite exciting that like the next wave of children hopefully will be more in touch with their emotions being willing to open and speak about things more and it kind of it's a nice segue into the last little question i was going to ask you which was around that whole masculinity femininity toxic energy you know even gender equality and i actually had a conversation with someone recently talking about masculine and feminine and i'm very i feel very in touch with my feminine side and i thank my mum for that which was a great gift that she gave us when she read us but i was kind of referencing how like oh it's good to have both masculine and feminine energy that regardless of gender you need to switch in those things sometimes and then other times your feminine side but then the person i was chatting to was like well because I was thinking, you know, oh, you know, sometimes you need to go into a boardroom and kick some ass and use your masculine energy. And then she said, well, why is that masculine energy? Sure. And I was like, uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't answer. And we call that masculine because it's just a societal thing that we've created around that, that energy of being strong and yeah. taking charge is seen as a masculine thing. I never thought of it that. Why is being soft and gentle necessarily linked to your feminine side you know is that just a construct that we've come up with and, and like do you where is, what's your opinion on all that I mean because that opened up a minefield and I say oh my god I don't even know what to say where do I go with that but yeah. where does that whole t- masculinity feminine toxic energy does that play into the work that you do at metal for sure and and so much and way beyond and I think it sounds like you've got some great friends I think having those conversations are so important But for me, again, I know I've said I'm the eternal optimist, but I've been so inspired to see, you know, your podcast is a really beautiful example of this. There's all these beautiful organizations and men who are embracing the idea that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to talk about the struggles that you're facing in having those stereotypes that exist around what it means to be a strong man and go and kick some ass in the boardroom. The fact that those are being broken down, the fact that your friend is asking you the question, why is that a masculine, why is that masculine energy? The fact that there are these beautiful organizations that go to schools and do what you were talking about in educating children, that it's okay for boys to cry it's, o- it's okay for boys to want to sit and read at lunchtime rather than kick the footy. There are so many that there are so many stereotypes that are being broken down that I think will inevitably lead to gender equality. We're as close as we can get to it. But in relation to our work, 
will help young boys to process anger and process emotion in a much more healthy and productive way. When we, in, in relation to metal, when we have a look at the perpetrators of the women in our care alone, and again, this is only such a small pool of women that I'm speaking to, I'm never condoning anything that these women have had to endure. But when you have a look at the history of their perpetrators and the environments that they grew up in, very often their perpetrators witnessed their father abusing their mother. And it's this cycle that I guess has never been, that it's never been broken because it's never been okay up until now to talk about what would have been a healthier way to express that anger or that frustration? How could you have worked through that in a way that didn't result in physical or emotional violence? So I think the conversations are happening. I, I had a really interesting chat with this beautiful organisation called Tomorrow Man last year. And their whole mission is to just change the stereotype of what it is to be a man and to help people understand they don't have to adhere to that and they're not weak if they don't present this macho image and I think that it's so important that they're not only educating young boys and young girls to understand what respect looks like but also going into rural communities and like mining communities and talking to men who are my dad's age like in their 60s and trying to reframe that for them as well it's no small feat. Like that's a really hard thing to do to have a conversation with someone whose mind is made up about what life is and how everything is meant to function to try and change their mindset to, to alleviate some of that pressure that just builds up inside and manifests in such an unhealthy way. Yeah. Hats off to the organizations that are doing such incredible work, but then to yourself as well for having conversations that let people know it's okay not to be okay and here are some ways to unpack that and to talk about it that don't result in someone being hurt so true and there's an amazing book actually that i got for my son sonny which is called notes to my future son and it's by a lady called katie guest and i would just highly recommend it for anyone that is going to be raising any future boys and the book, it's amazing. It has it's kind of a mixture of lovely, cute notes and affirmations and just statements around, you know, I hope that the environment that I can bring you up can let you feel like it's okay to cry, as you mentioned. And it's just littered with all these amazing, really simple, digestible things that you can just pass on to the future generations to think of that IKEA example, that hopefully we can get to a point then where this issue will start to rescind over time. And it, also reminds me of the, you know, the lockout laws, for example, was another thing that I think we got so wrong here in Sydney when there was the awful thing of the king punches. And they just got dealing with the issue wrong, in my opinion. It was about machoism and guys who were like, most of the guys who would attack those innocent victims were like big beefcakes who were on steroids and all that. So the issue was not about closing the bars at a certain time. The issue was, was way, way before that. It was like, why... Are men feeling this need to almost improve themselves, you know, and be that macho hero? That was the issue, not the issue of getting a drink, you know, at a certain time. So hopefully, yeah, that kind of education of our next generation, the young kids that are growing up, 
and letting them know that it's okay, which I think is happening. I mean, it's hard to know. We won't know for a few years. <laughs> Maybe we'll have this chat, you know, 20, 40, 42, and we'll be in a, a much better place. But I really appreciate your time. And then maybe for anyone that's listening with metal, if you're a guy or a girl or any kind of gender out there, like how do you get involved? What's the best way for them to help you guys out? So you can find us, we're spelt M-E-T-T-L-E. So that means to face adversity with spirit and resilience. And that's what we're trying to support. There's a whole bunch of info on our website and on our socials. But, you know, we, we know that times are really tough at the moment. We don't want to say the only way you can help is to buy products through our social enterprise. As we were saying before, conversations are key and just sharing the fact that outside of our social enterprise around the nation we're facing a pretty big crisis domestic and family violence and the more that people know about it the more that they demand change and the more that the people working on the ground can try and push change upwards so yeah talk as much as you can and can people donate like do you have an active philanthropy fund that you can tap into or yeah, so we're a registered charity, so all um, all donations are tax deductible. On our website, there's a donation link. Always, always welcoming donations. Everything apart from the sales goes to our crisis support fund. So all of those little extra barriers that the women face mm-hmm. go directly to helping them work through those. And for anyone that may be listening that might be in a scenario themselves, is reaching out to metal as a first protocol the right way to do it? Or would you recommend from a pathway perspective, or maybe you know someone who you're worried about, what's the best first step for people to take? I'll send you through a link to put some resources on because there's a bunch of amazing resources that are state-by-state specific. We're not a frontline, a a first point of call provider. So just for safety, I would recommend definitely going to a shelter or a domestic violence frontline service supporter first. Always reach out though. We're always here to have a conversation, but if you are in danger, definitely go to your front service providers first. Or call triple zero if you're in a real emergency. But yeah, I'll send you a link so that people can access what's the best for them within their local communities. Amazing. And we also have uh, metal gift cards and thank you cards in all our studios as well. So if you've got a loved one who has a birthday or anything like that, you're celebrating anything, you can purchase one of the cards in studio, which goes directly back to Brahman and the team at metal. So, and I think you and I need to have a chat offline about what other things that we can do as a business, getting people in for a sauna. Imagine if we could give moms the opportunity to come in and have a sauna. It could make their week, you know? Yeah, we'll definitely have to chat. That's a really exciting prospect. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And and hopefully we'll have a studio over in Perth sometime soon. (laughs) And vice versa. versa. Yeah, well, well, welcome anytime. And yeah, I think one final thought would be is to just continue these conversations in and around International Women's Day is a great, you know, nodal point every year, but also don't be afraid to keep these, you know, conversations going throughout every single day of the year. Because as you as you mentioned, everyone, every two minutes, somebody is calling the police with this as an issue. So it is, it's an everyday issue. So, Bronwyn, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. I really appreciate your time. And um, yeah. Hopefully we'll chat to you and see you soon. Thank you so much, Neil. Have a beautiful afternoon. Awesome. 
don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter, at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzier, and the Black Dog Institute.